0: Faith Over Fear is brought to you by Life Audio and is part of our Faith Toolkit series. For more inspirational, faith-affirming podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com.
1: Welcome to the Faith Over Fear podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Slattery. I'm an author, a speaker, and a ministry leader, and I am passionate about helping people live in freedom because life is too short and we have too much to do for any of us to live enslaved. You can find me online and on social media just google my name jennifer slattery i would love to connect with you today my daughter ashley is back i almost called her ashley slattery but her name changed recently my baby girl got married y'all ashley chester she joined me a while back for episode two titled the courage to thrive with anxiety if you haven't listened to that episode i encourage you to do so In it, she shared her struggles with anxiety and depression and also what it's like to live with a mom who has OCD, along with some practical self-care tools that we can all apply as we steadily advance towards increased freedom. Well, today, she's joining me to talk about something I feel all believers are called to do, and that's having the courage to advocate for others. Scripture tells us we're to speak up for the oppressed and to use our voice to speak for those who feel They have no voice. Something she sensed God calling her to do in a very specific and personal way, an area midway through college. Ashley, again, thank you for joining us. While our listeners may not have experienced what you did, or they might not feel called in the same area. I suspect they'll be able to relate to your story because I have a feeling many of our listeners know what it's like to feel powerless in a system or situation where others have the power and also to see others suffering from Some sort of abuse of power, and to feel equally strong pulls to self-protect and to fight for, or to want to protect others, and maybe even protect ourselves. So first, I'd love if you could tell a little bit about your story. If you could help us understand your struggle,
2: Um, I was diagnosed with dyslexia during my sophomore year of college. It was uh, took about a year to get my diagnosis. So getting diagnosed as an adult in college was part of my struggle because you can't, it's really hard to find um, psychologists or therapists or speech pathologists who are trained and willing to give learning disability tests to adults since that's normally caught in childhood. And then once I was diagnosed with my learning disability, it was very hard to get my professors to follow through
1: with my um, accommodations in the classroom. Can you share what was, so prior to diagnosis and, and what was your struggle like? Like what was school like for you? Well, I had to study and work very
2: hard to get the grades I did. Um, I didn't always get good grades. And when I first started going to traditional schooling in elementary and middle school, my grades really sucked, but I was always told that I was smart. And so I worked very hard. And I got good grades and I made it through high school because I stayed after class every day and got extra tutoring from teachers. And I would go home and spend hours doing homework and hours studying. And I thought like, this is normal. You have to work hard to get good grades. And I knew that there were some kids who didn't, but I thought they were just geniuses or cheating or whatever. I didn't know. I thought, I thought that the way my brain worked was normal. And then I got into college And I was on an academic scholarship and I was studying biological systems engineering. And I was with all of the other super smart kids. And I started to feel like I wasn't so smart anymore because I was working very hard. I was working twice as hard as everyone else was. And I was tutoring them for their classes, yet they were still getting better grades than me. And I was actually just barely scraping by.
1: I remember that time. And I remember you saying to me, numerous times, I'm trying so hard and it's never enough. Well, you had one teacher who played a part in your story.
2: Yeah. Well, actually all of my teachers knew my name. I went into all of their office hours and got help every time I need it. So the only reason I made it through pre-diagnosis was because I was given lots of extra credit opportunities. And because I worked hard, I think my professor for my Spanish class saw that my grades in her course weren't a lack of effort. And so she knew to pay attention for something else. Since dyslexia is often connected with reading issues, I was able to speak Spanish a lot better than I was able to write it in class. And through working with me in her office hours and in class, she noticed that I had similar educational patterns to her son, who also had dyslexia. So one day after a test, where I scored a D on it after studying very, very hard. She pulled me aside after class and told me, you know, you actually got all of these questions right. Unfortunately, I have to count spelling. And you switched all your B's and D's around. So that's the only reason you got a D on this test. But hey, my son has this thing that looks like you have. You should maybe get it checked out.
1: And so God will often use our past. I'm sure it was painful for her as a mom to see her son struggle. But then because she spoke into your life, it was a huge transition. It led to a huge transition for you. She mentioned at one point that she almost didn't talk to you.
2: Yeah, when I I sent her an email years later, like two years later saying like, hey, you might not remember me, but you did this thing for me. And I really, really appreciate it. And she told me like, I'm so sorry if it offended you. I didn't want to offend you. Like, and it just, I was so shocked to hear that she was so worried about this incredible gift she had given me, you know, hurting me.
1: Would it have been a gift to you if you didn't have that relationship? Do you think? I probably,
2: I, I probably wouldn't have taken it as seriously. And I probably would have been a little hurt by it because learning disabilities do come with such a stigma that like if you do suggest to somebody like hey maybe you're a little ADHD they they might get offended by it like it can be seen as an insult but when it comes from like a person who has repeatedly tried to help you in other ways too you
1: know it's taken as a little bit more genuine so you had a relationship with her so you knew that she cared for you and that she was speaking out of love is that
2: yeah yeah and i knew that she saw that i was trying
1: Author Liz Fork, I'm gonna say her last name wrong, but Liz Forkin Bohanan, she wrote Beginner's Pluck. And she shares a story where she had a passion to bring education to women in developing countries. I believe specifically in Uganda. While she wanted to do her part to change the world, she quickly realized, however, she didn't know a single Ugandan woman. So She realized that was a problem. Like, do I really, does my life demonstrate what I say I care about? And there was a disconnect there for her. So she quit her job. She moved to Uganda and she spent a good deal of her time just meeting with Ugandan women. And she got to know their hearts, their challenges, their dreams, and and eventually her business, I'm going to probably mispronounce this as well, Seiko Designs, which has helped many Ugandan women find employment and receive education was born. So her business was born through connection and relationship. Without that relationship piece, our efforts to affect change can be misunderstood, misinterpreted, and they might even feel condescending and hurtful. Like, like you mentioned, there is a stigma with, with your diagnosis. And so people don't want to feel rescued. Well, once you received your diagnosis, how did your education change? Did, it, did that change? It honestly got harder a little bit
2: because I had to go and take this piece of paper to all of my professors and ask them to give me special accommodations in class, which was a right protected by law. And it was these accommodations were designed to give me a fair chance in class. They were designed to make it so that I was on equal footing with my classmates. But because of the stigma and because of my professor's lack of education and understanding about learning disabilities, a lot of them had the opinion that either you have a learning disability and therefore you should not be an engineer, or you're able to be an engineer, you do good in my class, you must not really
1: have a learning disability. Did you actually have a professor say... Both of those things to you.
2: I, yeah, I had a professor tell me that maybe I was not meant to be an engineer. And then I also had professors insinuate that I was just getting these accommodations to try
1: to get an edge up in their class. And you had some that actually, whether intentionally or not, shamed you in front of other students, correct?
2: Yeah, legally, it's illegal for professors or anybody to, besides the person with the disability, to say that that person has a disability. But I had a lot of professors basically announce it in front of the entire class. I would say it happened more often than not, which was kind of embarrassing because, again, with the stigma of it, I was concerned that my classmates wouldn't take me as seriously and that they wouldn't want to be my partners on group projects and that if I was partnered up with them, they wouldn't listen to me.
1: So I remember one actually experience in particular where one of your accommodations is that you received extra testing time. Yeah, I
2: since it takes me longer to read as accurately as other people do,
1: uh, I get 150% 150% of test time. So let's explain that a little bit for those who aren't familiar with dyslexia. Basically, you, your brain sees it different, you uncode it, and then you have to kind of translate it and then respond. Is that correct? Yeah,
2: I see letters as shapes. And so, you know, the shape is still the shape no matter what way it's facing. So I have to, I can either read quickly or accurately.
1: And accurately is a lot more important on tests. Mm-hmm. And so you had extra time. And one professor in particular would forget. So I would often
2: due to me having a full class schedule. If I had a class before or after the class that I had the test in, I would have to schedule it at a time outside of that class. And so the professor would have to meet me separately, or I could be sent to a testing center. And he insisted on proctoring my test himself, which he did not have to do. And he would routinely show
1: up 45 minutes late to my exam, forcing me to miss my next class. And also costing you 45 minutes of precious time that you already felt short of, correct? Yeah, I
2: could have been studying or doing homework, or, um, but I had to just sit there and wait on him.
1: And I don't know if listeners, if they don't have learning disabilities, understand because of the extra time you had to put in, your time was incredibly short because for a normal student or a, a neural.
2: Neurotypical.
1: Neurotypical. I apologize. Student. They just go to class. They gain through lecture. They go home and they do their homework and they study and they're good. You don't learn through lecture. No, I go to lecture to take a list of things I need to teach myself outside of class. So you've already lost an hour, hour and a half. And then homework
2: takes me twice as long because I like to go back and check over my work a few times just so I can catch the mistakes that get made. It takes me twice
1: as long to study, too. So just to give you an idea of of her, where the problem lies. And so that was, so that's one challenge. So she had professors that were not respecting her time. So already, is it taking her extra time to study? Two to three times as much time to study. And then she has a professor that has then, she's lost 45 minutes that she could have been using towards her test. And she had no recourse. To say, hey, you weren't, you didn't show up. Like what, there was nothing she could do, and yeah. and with professors who were shaming her, there was nothing. They would call her out in the middle of the class. There was nothing she could do. And you started having conversations, and and the some of the accommodations, like according to your testing that all of the paperwork we had, they were supposed to give you the material ahead. Was that occurring?
2: No, but most, of, I would ask a professor for the material ahead and they would tell me that they didn't want me sharing their notes online. And so they didn't want to give it to me, which dude, there's 500 other professors in this country who teach entry-level college physics. Nobody's going to copyright your notes. But then there was also professors who just completely winged their class and so didn't have notes to give me ahead of time. And it was, or we, they didn't have a course plan. And so they didn't know what they would be teaching next week. And it was very frustrating. And I would go to the SSD office and tell them, hey, these professors are not honoring the accommodations you're giving me. And they would tell me that if it was unreasonably difficult for the professor to honor the accommodation, they were not required to do so. And so basically they weren't doing what they were supposed to. And I would try to go, you know, force them to do what they were supposed to. And it, and it wasn't working
1: we weren't even trying to force them you're having conversations but so basically to paraphrase they were not honoring these accommodations that by law they were supposed to honor and that they said they were going to honor but there was a disconnect between the SSD office and what was occurring in the classroom correct
2: yes and a lot of it came down to professor ignorance i think you know there there's two stigmas going on here there's the idea that People with learning disabilities are dumb. And then there's the idea that in order to do engineering, you have to be smart. And I don't think either of those is true. And so there was professors who thought that if I was able to do engineering, I must not really have a learning disability. And if I really have a learning disability, then I should not be an engineering student.
1: So you're starting to see both from your own experience and then through your dialogue with other students with disabilities that this was not a lone occurrence, right? That you were not and your experience was not abnormal.
2: Yes, I um, had a friend who had a physical disability um, where he made it so he could not use his own chemistry equipment and he was forced to ask other students for help with his chemistry experiments, which you have to do your own chemistry experience experiment. So he was having, he was having to ask that another student basically do two experiments and that was putting him in a really difficult position um, because the SSD office wouldn't get a TA or a lab assistant to help him instead. And then I heard from another student that There was a professor who just first day of class said, I know some of you guys are registered with the SSD office. I'm tenured. They can't fire me. I'm not going to honor any of your accommodations. And so then students would sue him and the university would just hold off on giving them their diploma until the case was resolved, which a lot of students could not afford to resolve the case because they you know, legal bills, and then they needed their diploma in order to get a job. And if the university was just refusing to hand over their diploma until the case was closed, they couldn't get a job to help pay for things. And they would just have to cancel the lawsuit in order to get their diploma and be able to get a job and be able to move on with their lives. And so this professor was just refusing to give accommodations, and there was no, no
1: repercussion for him. So you began, how many times did you meet with the SSD office? A lot. I met with them a
2: few times by myself and they were just not listening to me. And so I brought
1: my dad in with me. They weren't just not listening to you. They weren't answering your emails.
2: Yes, they, they were not. It was very frustrating.
1: So let's put this to explain when she's saying like, I met a few times, she actually numerous times she was coming in and saying, this is what's occurring. She was sending emails. This is what's occurring. And she got crickets. But she was spending unreal amounts of time trying to dialogue about this issue. And I remember you kind of wanted to just sit back. Yeah, I really wanted to give up because it felt like all of this
2: pushing wasn't doing anything. It was taking more of my time. It was making it so that some of my professors weren't huge fans of me, which I'm a people pleaser. I like people to like me. And I wanted to be able to get jobs through my university and get research opportunities and get... You know, recommendation letters are really important and reference letters and, you know, references on your resume are very important for getting a job. And I was worried that me
1: fighting against this was going to jeopardize this. In fact, I remember in that period, you and I had some conversations. And if you don't mind me sharing, you're actually in tears. Yes, I'm a bit of a crier. I spent a lot of time crying in the biology department bathroom. Well, this was a pretty intense... Because they were in the position of power. She was not in the position of power. As your mom, I wrestled with a lot of anxiety during that time as well because you're my baby. And I don't care how old you are, you will always be my baby. And I knew school was really challenging for you. She, to our listeners, she gave herself shingles three times. That's how stressful all of this and just how exhausted she became. And, and I really held tight to Ephesians 2.10 during that time. And, and I reminded myself of it often. And so it says, this is the New Living Translation. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And so, this verse at first and foremost reminded me that God had a plan for you, a plan that He had set into motion long before you took your first breath, or you first wanted to become an engineer, or you first encountered an angry, unaccommodating professor. And it also reminded me that you are His work of art, a woman that He was and is still molding into a strong and determined woman who reflects who He is at His core and who is equipped and empowered to fulfill the role that He handcrafted for you and you for that role. So sensing God's nudge to engage in a battle. And and when we find ourselves wrestling with fear, whether that's repercussion or exposure or rejection, whatever the fear, I would just, so if that's the place that you're in right now, I would encourage you to spend some time just daily praying over that verse, Ephesians 2.10, until its truths have really saturated your heart. And when I was going through my own battles years ago, God spoke to me through Bible study teacher Priscilla Schreier. So it's her voice of God study. She said something to the effect that if we try to get out from under whatever God was assigning us in that moment. So like for you it was fighting the SSD office and and making it through college, we will be unprepared for whatever he has ahead. And that really stuck with me. I've encountered a lot of immature and stagnating Christians And I can't help but wonder how many have stunted their growth because they were too afraid or unwilling to embrace hard assignments. Did the battle for you, did it ever feel insurmountable? I mean, when professors were saying that they weren't going to
2: honor my accommodations or when, you know, students didn't want to work with me or didn't listen to my input, And when the SSD office just quit responding to my emails, it it got pretty tough. And, you know, it it felt like, why why make all this fuss when it's not going to change anything anyways?
1: Mm -hmm. And I think we can all feel that when we're up against something really difficult fighting a battle. And we have to remember that we're not responsible for results. We may do and say all the right things and we may never change the system or we may only affect what feels like a small amount of change. But in the process, we're speaking love and honor and dignity to others. You were able to have a lot of conversations with people, right, that you probably wouldn't have had otherwise.
2: Yeah, I think students, other students felt
1: comfortable talking to me about their academic struggles because mine were so public. Mm -hmm. And we're responsible for obeying Christ and revealing his heart to a hurting and broken world. And when we tell others that we belong to Jesus that carries a lot of weight. We're acting as his representatives and Jesus always sought out the marginalized, the mistreated and the oppressed and he always called out the oppressors. So as you, you were acting as his ambassador, regardless of how anybody responded. I tried to. <laughs> how did God use your battle, your willingness to advocate, to grow you internally?
2: I learned to be a lot stronger. I learned to set boundaries. I learned to speak up for myself. I learned how to be a leader because um, once other students with disabilities saw how I handled the professors and saw how easily I talked to them towards the end of my journey, they started coming to me and asking me to help them talk to their professors. And so I would guide them through that. And it also brought me lots of opportunities because the good
1: professors saw you know, my growth and leadership. So all of those internal growth steps, courage to set boundaries and to stand against abuse of power to hold conversations. I can just say as your mom, I know those were areas that you avoided with every fiber of your being prior in your earlier years. Yeah. I think, I think I learned to not care so much if people thought I was smart or not. So God used that to develop some really deep strengths within you that had once been weaknesses that are now pretty core strengths. Yeah, it probably did change me a lot, pretty rapidly over, you know, just two or three year time period. Mm -hmm. And so when you were entering these difficult conversations, did you ever feel like maybe you would say the wrong thing or lose your temper? All the time I cry when I'm
2: frustrated and when you're wanting a professor to see you as a serious and capable student, crying in their office is not the way that you want to do that. How'd you handle that? Um I would just cry and then, you know, keep on having the conversation or, you know, go back later or and each time I had the conversation, I could go longer without crying and so eventually
1: I didn't cry anymore. You know, God's call to advocacy will be especially difficult to conflict avoiders. But God calls us to be peacemakers, and I don't think we often understand what that means. Biblical peace is not conflict avoidance. It's seeing it's seeing and seeking true health, true peace, which can only come when people and relationships and the world comes in alignment with God's will. There is no peace outside of God's will, and God always moves his children towards increase spiritual and emotional freedom. So if we're struggling with this, if we're people pleasers and conflict avoiders, we might need to spend some time with God uncovering why this is. Are we struggling with misplaced identity? Is our identity rooted in people's opinions rather than who we are in Christ? I heard you mention a few times how kind of indicated to me what I was hearing that maybe that was a struggle for you. Yeah, it definitely was. I thought that in order to get the good opportunities, everybody had to like me. That touches on another one. Have we placed our security in others, our career or our our education, whatever it is, our security in that, the, the people in authority, instead of our Savior who holds all things by his power? And have we been taught that conflict is bad or unloving? And maybe we need to unpack that so we can have a more biblical view of conflict resolution. So really briefly, you grew a lot internally, but you also experienced some some other opportunities.
2: Yeah, so not all of my professors were bad. There was actually some really great professors at UNL and um, particularly my academic advisor. And they noticed my struggle and they saw, you know, potential in me and pushed me to advocate more and gave me opportunities to speak in front of an external review board or, you know, have talks with other students and, you know, gave me jobs because of my leadership and
1: advocacy work. You had one professor, in fact, that really came along closely beside you and mentored you.
2: Yeah. Dr. Keshwani, He was my academic advisor and he, um, gave me a position as a graphic designer on a video game project and sent me to conferences and sent me to board meetings. And, you know, I, and he told me that was
1: because of my leadership. As we speak up for others, people will see that in us and God will bring people to come alongside of us, but it will also, it will also help others to gain the courage to speak for themselves. As we rise up, others will have the competence to do the same. And you shared that a little bit, but we see this in Philippians chapter one. So I'm going to give a little background information. So Paul, he was a first century evangelist. He wrote a lot of the new Testament under God's guidance, and he was under house arrest because he proclaimed Christ. Well, considering that one would think that those in his faith community would experience increased fear after all, I'm certain they didn't want to get arrested, but according to Paul, that's not what happened. In Philippians 1, 12 to 14, he said, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. When we stand up in courage, when we use our words well, when we notice those who are suffering or oppressed or experiencing some kind of abuse of power, and we come alongside them, we give them courage. We come alongside them. We don't act as their saviors. We come alongside them and and help them to find the courage as well. And then they begin to, we show them what it looks like to live for Christ, empowered by Christ, as we fight the battles assigned by Christ. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope we gave you some things to think about, maybe to pray about. I believe that God has a holy battle for each one of us as we just steadily join him in his advance against darkness, and he will mold us through it. I hope today's episode encouraged you. I would be encouraged if you would rate it. That will help other people to find it. And I would love it if you would subscribe, and then you'll receive future episodes. You can also go back and look at all of our previous episodes if you're just catching up now. And I would love it if you would share it with your friends. Thank you for joining us. Ashley, again, thank you so much for joining us. Go in peace and go in courage.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Faith Over Fear, a production of Life Audio and the Salem Web Network. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we'd love for you to head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review to learn more about Jennifer Slattery or to check out any of the resources she mentioned in this episode, just head over to her website, Jennifer Slattery lives out loud.com or check out our show notes. This episode was produced by Kelly Givens and edited by Stephen Sanders. A special thanks to our executive producer, Stephen McGarvey. For more faith toolkit podcasts like this, Just head over to lifeaudio.com.
1: And one by one,
2: I watched my dear friends get engaged, get married, start having children, and especially as a woman... I felt like there was a certain timeline that
1: these things needed to happen in my life.
0: Charity Gale shares a personal testimony on The Walk, a podcast for worshipers. Join us weekly to hear songwriters, worship leaders, filmmakers, and other creatives tell their stories in the form of a devotional. The Walk can be found on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast platform.